I do, I recognize you're in this series on navigation, finding your way around some of the most pressing issues and challenges of our time. So I'll just add my contribution this morning uh, to what has to be considered maybe the most difficult and important navigation challenge of your life, which is yourself. Uh, navigating the fullness, the span of what will be your life. And honestly, if you have ever felt lost in your own life, if you've ever wondered, what, what the heck am I doing here? Anybody feel that way at work, maybe, or school, or looking at your kids? Uh, how did I get here? What is God doing? What does it all mean? Am I going to make it? What's next? What's my purpose? Do I have a purpose? <laughs> Honestly, if you've ever struggled to find your way around it through your own life, you're not alone. And I would say that there are three, three big reasons why people feel lost in their own life. And it's because of a disorientation to three things. Time, desire, and pain. So if it's okay with you, we'll just kind of tackle those one at a time. Can we pray? Lord, thank you for my friend. Thank you for this community. Thank you for your very real presence here. We don't want to squander it. Just in your own way right now, just breathe a prayer of openness. Just say, Lord, I want to hear your voice spoken to me, over me, for me. Whether it's a word of challenge or comfort, we're listening, God. We're not afraid to hear your voice. In Jesus' name, amen. So let's start with time. And let's look at this extraordinary uh, text, quite beautiful, actually, in Ecclesiastes 3. So let's look at that together. If you want, however you reference the Bible this morning. There is a time for everything and a season for every activity under the heavens. There's a time to be born and a time to die. There we go, just frame all of life. A time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to uproot. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to tear down and a time to build. A time to weep, to laugh, to mourn, to dance. A time to scatter stones and a time to gather them. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. Monica loves to hug us too much. We, we, we want less embracing. She's very smothering. No, I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. Affectionate. That's my wife. Sorry. <clears throat> a time to search. Time to give up. A time to keep and a time to throw away. A time to tear and a time to mend. A time to be silent and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. And this is his conclusion for this refrain. What do workers gain from their toil? And he says, I have seen the burden God has laid on the human race. He has made everything beautiful in its time. And he has, set, he has also set eternity in the human heart, yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. 
<clears throat> One of my favorite places in the whole world is a museum uh, called the Tate Modern. It sits on the on Bankside in London on the Thames River, just across actually the river from St. Paul's Cathedral, if you've ever seen that extraordinary sacred building. And you actually can walk across the Millennial Bridge, which is a walking bridge, uh, and you can get right there to the Tate Modern. It's a sort of a post-war building with not a lot of windows, and it, I think it actually was a power plant uh, before it was converted to a museum. And of course, it, it, um, it, for reasons I can't explain, it's a place of great encounter for me with God. It's a sacred place, and it's just a, it's just a beautiful place, so I'm... I'm a sucker for beauty. And actually, the older I get, the more I'm enticed by beauty, the more I think that the pursuit of beauty is somehow attached to the pursuit of God. Of course, the Tate Modern is full of modern art. And modern art is strange. Actually, modern art to the, to the sort of untrained eye is maybe even uh, um, ridiculous. Uh, you know, you might see like a toilet uh, in an empty room or something, and you walk in and think, uh-oh, somebody left their toilet. No, that's, a, that's an installation. You know, that's a, that's a, that's a work of art, a, a pair of shoes just sitting there or something, and uh, a, a chair affixed to a wall, and that is a piece of art. Now, the thing about modern art is that the more you look at it, the harder it is to understand. And the first time I went to the Tate, I, I was sort of, I felt the challenge of it. And I thought, let me just sit here and try to understand what it is that this means. I'd say that's probably why people don't like modern art, abstract art, that kind of thing. It's because it's not clear, actually, what it means. It's very hard to understand what the heck it means. And I'm going to tell you, the first time I was at the Tate, I just sat for hours, actually, and looked at pieces and could not figure them out. It was very frustrating. Maybe it was the second or third time I was in the Tate, something happened that changed the whole game for me. I was sitting there looking at some, a toilet or whatever it was, and, and I was just sort of like, what? Could this mean, you know, the art was just sitting there on its own, solitary. And the, the game of interpretation, uh, uh, inscrutable. And something happened. A tour came by. A tour, you know, with like a tour guide, with some art expert. Nod your head, you know what I'm talking about? Give me something here. Okay, you know, you know what a tour is. We're, we all speak the same language, okay. So, so... You know, at first, I'm sort of eavesdropping at a distance, and I realize this, this sounds really interesting. Uh, and, and, and of course, th this is what you realize. That piece of art, there's an artist behind it. So actually, there's an artist behind every installation, and there's a story behind every installation, and there's a context behind every installation. There's an idea. There's a mission, almost, for every piece of art. And so my eavesdropping gave way eventually to me sort of like trying to get closer to the tour, you know, pretending like I was looking at some other piece, you know, while I listened in. Eventually, you know, all shame is gone and you just follow the tour and, and pretend like you're on the tour. I'm sure that the tour is like, I know that guy didn't pay or whatever, but what can they do? You know, they're not going to stop and throw you out. I'm going to tell you, they're not going to stop and throw you out. This is what I discovered. <clears throat> By the way, the Tate Modern is free. It's one of the most beautiful, incredible uh, places for art, housing art in the world, and it's free. So just everything about that's right. Um, and, and I'm obviously cheap and don't want to pay for anything. So, um, 
So, so what I would do is listen into the tour, and, and suddenly there's this whole backstory. Maybe the artist, this artist was in a German concentration camp, and that chair that hangs on the wall was made from the wood that came from a bunk from one of those concentration camps. The, the placement of the chair on the wall matters. The material it's built with, the shape of the fasteners that are used, the placement in the room just so, the interplay of light and shadow, all intentional. All to tell a story of pain and hope and suddenly the art isn't just meaningful, it's beautiful. And all things are beautiful, Solomon says, in their time. And of course, what do I mean? I mean this to be a metaphor for you, for your life. Of course, this is true of you, of your life. If you can reconcile it with time, your life with time. Your life is sometimes hard to understand. It's strange. It's inscrutable. The meaning of it. You can find yourself in the middle of your life saying, what is the point of this? What is the purpose of this? What is my purpose? What, what does all of this mean? And listen, just so there is an artist making your life. There's a larger context to your life. There's a placement in and around other things that your life fits somehow. There's an interplay between light and shadow in your life. There's a story to tell full of pain and sorrow and hope. And if you can understand the artist's intent, then you can see that your life too is beautiful. But all of that is probably only true if and when you're able to look at your life, as Solomon would say here, from beginning to end, to fathom your life from beginning to end. The challenge for us, of course, is that we have to try to discern the meaning of our life and the intention of the artist upon our life as it's being made. So imagine how much harder it would be to understand a work of abstract or modern art. It's not even in the museum yet. It's not even finished it's halfway done in the studio, in the artist's studio. I suppose the only way that you could do that, the only way that you could figure out or find meaning in a half-finished work of art would be to stand as close, listen carefully, it would be to stand as close as you could to the creator, to ask a lot of questions, and to listen as closely as you could to their design intent for the piece. And to believe somehow in their vision for it. When they say this is what it's meant to be. This is what it will become. This is what it will, once, it will finally look like. And this is the impact that it will have on the people that observe it. To somehow believe in what they're saying. To see what they see. Though it is yet unfinished. When Solomon says here there is a season or a time for everything... You're listening to an old man reflecting on the frustrations of not seeing meaning in his life, of going through so many experiences and wondering, what was the point of that? To run after things that everyone else says are important and to realize at the end, it actually was meaningless. To try one thing and to think this is what life is all about, only to realize that sometimes life is about the exact opposite. 
to think about your life, which we do, which is hard not to do, to think about your life as right now, to think your life is somehow fixed in time as this moment, or to imagine a little bit of what your life is as your past. So a little bit of your past, but mostly right now. This is my life. This, we say that. We, we say that phrase. This is my life. You know, you look around your messy house or your crazy kids or your broken car. You say, this is my life. And that frame is just way too limited for what a life really is. And Solomon is, is, is saying essentially that our life is made up of seasons, each with a purpose and a lesson to teach us, each with a unique mission to accomplish and ultimately to realize that a life can only be truly and fully measured when it is finished, when it is complete. You know, beware of judging your life too soon. So Mike mentioned it, but um, <clears throat> I had a theory about calling and development uh, in the book I just recently uh, published uh, called Six Seasons of Calling. So I'll, we'll, put up that, we'll put up that little framework here for you. Um, I just have this theory that, you know, uh, it's kind of psychosocial development theory that, that says that we go through sort of fa developmental phases in the course of our life. And, and, and what I'm imagining here is that God creates the world in six days. Don't look at it yet. Stay with me. Stay focused on me. I'll explain it in a second. You probably won't understand it even after I finish, so just still stay with me. <laughs> God creates the world in six days. All of creation, from, from, from conception to human beings, to the placement of human beings, six days, six distinct periods of time. So imagine your life in the same way. God is creating something with your life. And he has six days to work with, six periods of time. So if we think, you know, the, the median age of death for us in, in the West is about 72 years old. So don't worry, some of you are like 71, you're like, oh God, I'm not <laughs> predicting the time of your death. Um, many of you are going to live to 100, you know, that's great. So 72 plus, we'll just call it 72 plus. Um, but if you imagine that, it's sort of 72 year period that you're given as a lifetime. Let's just call that a lifetime. You can imagine that being broken up into segments of 12-year periods, or about, we'll call that a day. So a day being about a 12-year period. Now what my theory is, is essentially those are developmental phases that we go through. Zero to 12, that's day one. 12 to 24, we'll call that day two. 24 to 36, day three. 36 to 48, day four, and so on. To 60, to 72. And so... And what I realize, because, because I do a lot of work with people in calling and discerning their calling, what I realize is that people don't experience calling once in their life. When they're 22, they say, God, what am I meant to do with my life? And he tells them, and that's it, baby. You just ride that wave to death. That's not how it works. And that was a disappointment to me because I thought, let's just get this calling thing sorted out and then people will be good to the end. The reason why that's not how it works is because Calling is about intimacy with God. So actually listening, calling is about listening to a voice. There's no such thing as calling if there is not one who calls. And so it really calling is not about you finding your purpose. It's about an intimate relationship with the one who made you, with the one who actually knows exactly what his design intent is for you. And life changes. Life changes us. By the way, we, we should be growing. So look, if God whispers in my ear at 20, this is what I want you to do with your life, I will be able to do a very small portion of that. 
But when I'm 50, maybe I could do more of it. I'm growing. I'm changing. Hopefully there's a work of sanctification and development that's already happening in us. So it, it stands to reason that we would grow. And what I'm saying, what I, what I realize is that each of these days have a kind of common developmental calling. Each of these days. I would say in day one, the, the core, now you can look at it. <clears throat> in day one, the core calling of, of someone under 12 years old is simply to be a child, to learn to be dependent, to learn to play, to experience the world as a place of adventure and wonder, and to bond with other people. And of course, anything that breaks that, that, that inhibits that, is, a development, is developmentally regressive. So it keeps us from being the, the person God wants us to be. Now listen, this is also cumulative. So once you learn that sort of core identity is I am a child, it's not something you change or leave behind as you move on to the next thing. It's something you keep with you. As a core identity, you build upon it. And honestly, if you never learn to be a child, you can't enter the kingdom of God. So some of us have to go backwards and learn that lesson again so we can move forward. Then I would say day two, the core work is to be a student. It's essentially to learn about the world, to test the world. So if anybody has a teenager, you know that teenagers like to test the world. They test you. And that's all good. That's exactly what God is calling them to do. I'm not giving you licensed teenagers to... Well, maybe I am. You know... You, you can see, is this right or not right? Is this wrong or not? Now, there's, there's developmental threats, which I would outline in the book. And actually, I'm going to talk about in the pre-conference at the leadership conference, if you're interested. Uh, but the core calling then in day two is to be a student, to be a learner. Then I would say in day three, the core calling is to be a servant, uh, to, to somehow become a part of something that's bigger than you, to learn a set of skills, to learn what you're really good at, what your competencies are, what you're not good at to lead you into day four, which is to actually make your creative mark on the world, to actually do something that has not been done before. We'll call that being a maker. And then to move into day five, which I would call a season of mentor, which is now, you're, you don't want to be the center anymore, but you're, you're somehow seeing other people thrive and other people succeed to the final day of life and development, which is a call to be a mystic, which is to really have one foot in eternity. And all of this is outlined in the book. I don't say this because I want you to really focus so much on that idea, except to see that your life exists as a whole thing. That actually what you've been given to steward is a whole lifetime from beginning to end. And where you are to locate yourself in the middle of that, somewhere in that journey, is to recognize that you are not fully the person God means to make you. Navigating your life means navigating from beginning to end. It means realizing that in each season of life, God is uniquely calling you to himself and into his mission. And saying yes to his vision for your life is to have your life remade into something else. So to talk about that, I think we have to, we have to touch on the issue of desire. Um, <clears throat> I, for this, I was just thinking about Matthew 4, the little story of the calling of the disciples or the calling of the fishermen, the first disciples. So I'll just read you this short text. And Jesus, walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And then he said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. You know this text very well. And they immediately left their nets and followed him. <clears throat> now, I think, I think you know, the, the, the clear and obvious takeaway for this text is always that, you know, they leave their nets. Uh, maybe that's the first uh, connotation of this, 
this, this story. There's a giving up of one version of your life for another. Jesus is actually asking for a trade. He's basically saying to them, look, I want you to come follow me, but that means leaving behind what you currently do. Your own design for your life, your own desire to set your life up in a certain way, a particular way. The, the, the status quo of your life, you have to somehow leave that behind. That's a trade that has to be made. That's a cost, uh, a price that has to be paid. But then this last little bit about being fishers of men. Of course, that's an upgrade, right? To go from fishing from fish to fishing from men, that's a, that's a, that's a better commodity. That's an improvement upon their life, presumably. Um, this, is, this is between cost and promise, the, the, that, that, that if you do this, if you give this up, and this is still true. It's still true right now in your life. It's, it's still a proposition being offered to you in this exact moment. If you will give this option, this, this, your own version of your life up, and if you'll come and follow me, I'll turn you into something. I'll make you something extraordinary. It's something bigger than you could have imagined. It's about destiny or purpose or significance or dignity. That's the promise. But right there in the middle, this is what I'm going to focus on. Right there in the middle is this word make. I will make you something. That, that, that actually Jesus is the fulcrum, the turning point uh, the pivot of, of the cost and the promise is this work that only Jesus can do to make you something. I mean, look, this is important. They were fishermen, right? That's what they did for a living. They made their living by taking from nature what nature would give them. But Jesus, at least in his, in his sort of earthly profession up to this point, Jesus was a maker. What did, what did that mean? In other words, Jesus could look at a, at a raw piece of wood or a blown down tree and see potential in that piece of wood. To think as a maker does, as only a maker could, to look at a raw piece of wood and say, I could make that into a cabinet or I could make that into a tool or I could make that into a table or I could make that into something else, something other than it currently is. That's what a maker can do. It can take the raw material of nature and turn it into something else, something better. So this maker is actually seeing potential in, in possibility in these young men. And he's saying, I can make you into something more than you are now, something more than you could become without me in the service of something greater than you can fathom. But, you know, being made into something is hard. It's a crucible. It's hot and fierce and it's, 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 it's pulling apart. It's breaking. I mean, you take a piece of wood, you have, to, you have to cut it, you have to pull it apart, you have to plane it, you have to sand it, you have to change it. And of course, this is still the offer and the proposition is to follow me, to stay very close to me and, that, and to let him make you into something, to forge you from the fire of this life to a tool in the hand of God. But all that hangs on the call to hear the voice of Jesus saying, choose me instead of that, choose me instead of everything else. And this call, as it's being made to us day to day and in each season of our life, is hard in different ways. It's harder in different seasons of the life that we're in. It will be hard to you as a student it would be harder in a different way in your 20s, harder in a different way in your 30s, in your 40s, in your 50s, in your 70s. It's harder in a different way. But, the, but, the, but the, the invitation is continually made to us. 
And I would say in a, in, a, in a kind of crisis of identity, this happens to us about every 12 years, where we wake up and we go, who am I now? What am I supposed to do now? What do I do now that all the kids have left the house? And you look at your wife or your husband and you say, who are you? you know, uh, nice to meet you. Um, or, 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 or what do we do now with all the space? Or who are we without kids to take care of? Or, or, or if you finish school, you finally graduate college, or like, we did it, we got, who am I now without school to tell me what to do or where to go or how to get a grade? How do you make an A in life? And this, this, this exact crisis drives us to a place of intimacy with God to, to continually make this same trade but then that always, that hearing that call and obeying that call always comes down to desire. What do you want? What do you want? What St. Augustine would call disordered loves. This is, this is essentially, the older I get, the more I realize this is all that our spiritual lives come down to. It comes down to what do you want? What do you really want? And if you want God, he is yours to have. And if you want something else, it is there for you as well. And you will find what your heart seeks. You will find what your heart seeks. This, by the way, is what I think Solomon is talking about when he says that God has laid a a burden upon the human race. I have seen the burden that God has laid upon the human race. What is that? And, And he has put eternity in the hearts of men. So there is a burden. This is what I think Solomon means. We have this thing inside us which wants everything. We, des- we have these desires, and it, and, it, and it weighs on us like a burden. We want all the things we think there are to have. And yet also in our hearts, there's, there's, there's a yearning and a longing for something that only can be found in eternity. I actually think this is just the, theme, the whole theme of Ecclesiastes. All the things we think we want and we chase after, we only discover in the end they're really meaningless. All of them in the end are meaningless. None of them are really what we wanted after all. We thought we wanted that. We yearn actually for eternal things. Ultimately, we yearn most deeply for God. So listen to me. Base, what we call base or lesser desires, then are alternatives to the calling of Jesus. When Jesus says, come, come, know me, be with me, walk with me, trust me, listen to me, hide yourself in me. When he says that to you and to me in each season of life, in each day, in each morning, when he says that to you and to me, essentially what we're being asked is to trade in weaker or lesser desires to say yes to that. Everything we know and understand about desire is actually in that strange way that, that opposites teach us something, actually they're clues to what it means to have a relationship with Jesus. Everything, you, if you desire fame, whatever it is that fame could give you, that ultimately is a clue to what Jesus can give you. If you desire money or position or, or, or possessions or, 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 or wealth or, or significance or whatever it is that you desire, ultimately those things are clues to, 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 the, to the potency, to the panacea, which is Jesus. You know, in coaching people, I'll ask them, say, what, what is it that you want? Maybe you have a goal for yourself, like I want to make a million dollars by the time I'm 30, or I want a Tesla, or I want a big house, or I just want a certain amount of money in the bank. The older we get, the more we want a, you know, a certain amount of money, something like that. Fine. But what's behind that? Why? Why do you want a house? 
Why do you want to make a lot of money? And if you'll just have the courage to ask yourself that one question, the whole thing is unlocked. Here's why. Because you'll go, well, actually, it, I actually just want to feel secure. And, and having no money makes me feel insecure. So really what you want is not to be rich, it's to be secure. Isn't that right? And so if you can see that, if you can unlock that and realize, actually, what I want is not money, it's security. And if I could say there is a way to get security without money, would you take it? And of course, the answer is yes, you should. Because in the end, it's not about a big house or a nice car or anything. It's about these other things, these greater desires that we, des that we, desire, that we want or long for. Because really, it's not the money and the fame and the stuff. It's this other thing. It's security and safety and significance and, and hope and belief. And, 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 and to wake up every day and to breathe the air of this life and to not feel anxious and to not feel afraid or to not feel despairing. But listen, just as lesser desires lead us to greater desires, when you peel back the layers of desire, you realize actually lesser desires are not about that. They're about something greater. The greater desires themselves for significance, for safety, for home, for purpose, those greater desires actually also lead us to a person. In the end, when Jesus says, look, guys, drop your nets, just come be with me, follow me, he knows exactly what he's offering them is everything their hearts desire. Not the lesser, baser, foolish desires. He's not promising them money or fame or power or any of that nonsense or possession or leverage. He's offering them the ultimate things that their hearts desire. He is our one desire. If desire could be consolidated into one thing, it is a person. It's what Paul would call the surpassing greatness of knowing Jesus Christ. It might be helpful here to introduce you to a French philosopher of social science, a guy called René Girard who I'm, I'm sort of fascinated by his theory, his, probably his greatest uh, contribution uh, to the field which is called philosophical anthropology, um, is what could be called ethical systems of desire. So Girard was interested in the way that desire impacts our relationships with each other and the, the, the dynamic of conflict that it creates uh, between us as human beings. So Girard would say all conflict, all competition, and rivalry originate in what he calls mimetic desire. Mimetic desire. Mimetic in the sense of just mimicry. Mimicry. So Girard's idea is this. When you want something, when you feel like, I want that, I have a desire for that, I have a longing for that, he says about maybe about 5% of the time that desire is from you. Like I thought this morning like going to the bathroom you know like when you when your bladder is full and some of you right now might be feeling like I really need to go to the bathroom that's a true desire from you it doesn't come from anywhere else other than your bladder but he says about 95% of other things which we consider which we call desires which we think come from us we think originate from us actually just come from looking at other people and wanting what they have mimicry so I used this example this morning. I was, I, we stayed at Mike and Ruth's house, and they have a very freshly painted house. Their house interior is very freshly painted, sort of 
cool gray color, and it's pleasant. And I, and I, I could not help but thinking this morning, I, my house really needs a fresh coat of paint. You didn't know you wanted a Tesla until you saw somebody else driving a Tesla. That's not a, that's not a root desire that you have. Do you understand that? When you drive through a neighborhood and you look at houses, as I do, and you look at houses, you always think, oh, I really like that one. I really like... I, I have no intrinsic desire for these things until I see you have them. This goes really for everything. And so Gerard says that the, all of that mimetic desire gives way to what he calls mimetic rivalry. So now we all want the same things. We want to look a certain way, we want to act a certain way, talk a certain way, dress a certain way, have certain things. And all of that mimetic desire, which we share, creates conflict between us, an implicit, unresolved conflict between us. And he says, and this is what gets really dark, this triangulation. He says that mimetic desire that leads to mimetic rivalry is then we try to resolve it. We try to resolve it in what he calls uh, the scapegoat mechanism. Stay with me. This is really fascinating and might, might unlock something about your current workplace or your friend group or something. Um, <clears throat> so mimetic desire creates mimetic rivalry and that tension that we feel we can't resolve. We can't even name it. So what we do is we look for an innocent. Somebody, he says, with the weakest power within the system, and we blame them for all of the conflict we feel. And we place upon their head, in this sort of scapegoat metaphor, we place upon their head, they're the problem, they're the reason, they're the, they're the issue, the reason why we feel weird towards each other, they're the problem. And what that does is it creates a temporary unity between us where we can agree that's the per that person's the bad one. That, person, that person's got to go. I don't know. Imagine your workplace. You're all vying for the same pr promotion, so you feel a tremendous amount of tension between each other. But you don't talk about that. You don't talk about, like, we're competitors. What do we do with this? No, you don't do that. But you pick somebody in the office that you think, you know what's wrong with this office is so-and-so. And then everybody gangs up on so-and-so and says they, they're always late to meetings and never do, the, never do their share or whatever you pick on them. You figure out what's wrong with them. And then you all work to get someone, Joe, let's call him Joe. We all work to get Joe fired. And eventually Joe gets fired. And what he says, what Gerard says, is that, 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 that choosing of an innocent scapegoat to, to take all of that unresolved conflict upon themselves, we have to murder them. We essentially have to kill that person somehow. And once they die, we feel a relief. Relief. I think Girard is right. And my own analysis of social systems and social... I mean, not 100% right, but I think there's truth in it. Not just, not just practically true, but he's also right metaphysically in a true sense. Why? Because, because he stumbled on something about, about, about the story of the incarnation and the atonement. Jesus is our scape. In fact, Jesus dies... Jesus willingly dies. Jesus chooses to be the scapegoat for our unresolved desire and the brokenness that creates. And if we let him, he is that willing sacrifice that not only dies for that, but he creates a way out, a way out for all of us from the whole vicious circle. He can deliver you from mimetic desire because he has something else for you to chase. Remember when Jesus said, don't worry about your life, what you'll eat or drink or wear? The pagans run after those things. But instead, you seek the kingdom of God. If you'll follow me, if you'll enter into that 
most intimate relationship. You'll have access to the artist who made you, the creator who has seen the beginning and the end of you, and not just you, but the whole, the whole broken, corrupt planet. And he has something for you to do in each season of your life, in each decade of your life, that is both the best possible version of your life and the most potent use of your uniqueness toward the redemption of the world. So the best advice I can give is to sell everything you have to buy that field, (laughs) to trade every lesser desire, every lesser dream for the sound of his voice, for the nudge of his leadership, for the intimacy of his friendship. And so this leaves us then just with pain, with our pain. And life is riddled with pain. I remember as a young man, I probably thought... um, Sadness and happiness were binary concepts that basically, if you feel sad, did I mix those up? Which one was sad? I don't remember. If you feel sad, you can't feel happy. And so try to remove the sadness so that you can be happy. And of course, the older I get, the more I realize that life is bittersweet, that actually what it is that we experience, if, if, if we're willing to, to, to hold in our hearts the infinity which is the heart of God, we're always a little bit sad. But it doesn't stop us from feeling joy. It begins to, it begins to position pain slightly differently in our life. And so, so you, you, you can hear that almost in every line of Ecclesiastes pain. The pain of failure, the pain of regret, the pain of mistakes, we have to come to terms with pain and loss and failure and betrayal, and dashed dreams and stubborn shortcomings and foolish decisions and bad breaks and cruelty suffered by us and cruelty done by us. There's externalized pain like rejection and betrayal and abuse and illness and failed relationships and broken promises the hatred and anger and malice of others, but there's internalized pain, which may be worse. I don't know, Uh, fear, depression, anxiety, despair. When we betray others, when we lie or gossip, we're the reason why our relationships fail. Maybe the hardest truth of all to swallow in this life is that I am actually the one who is responsible for the most pain in my own life. You are probably the one most responsible for most of the pain in your own life. I have my own share of pain, as I'm sure you do. Probably the last four or five years in our life has been uh, the most difficult, not the least of which being a wayward child who suffers from mental illness and addiction and self-harm. And, 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 I never experience relief from the sadness of that reality. I'm happy, I laugh, I enjoy my other kids, I experience the grace of God, but that is always there in my heart. And here's the thing about pain. Pain can be the thing that breaks you or drives you away from God, or pain actually can be an occasion for the deepest possible intimacy with God. And why is that the case? It is the case because God understands. I think of that remarkably remarkably beautiful line hidden, buried there in John 20. 
in the garden where Mary comes to tend to the, to the grave of her son. Where that gardener asks that question at the apex of grief, why are you crying? And who are you looking for? It's like these two questions that strip us bare. Why do we cry? Why are you crying? I've cried more in the last five years than I did probably in all my life before that. And to hear the heart of God say, why are you crying? Who are you looking for? And to know that God cries too. This is, this is the thing. Just like desire ends in Jesus, ultimately ends in Jesus, so all sorrow is a search for Jesus. The man of sorrows. Who reveals the most unbelievable thing that it's not just that Jesus dies, that when he dies and suffers the agony of the cross, he experiences suffering, but that God himself suffers for us and with us. And so he knows why we cry, and he cares for every one of us when we cry. And each moment of pain in our lives is actually an occasion for intimacy with him, with his heart for us, for our neighborhood, for our world. But also to remind us that pain is never the end. I don't know if, 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 if the musicians want to come up or want to help me finish. I'll just tell you one last little story as I finish. Pain is never the end. He does make all things beautiful in their time. The renewal this morning of that friendship that you have with God, which started in calling, began in the trading of desire, forged over the fires of the seasons of our lives, it makes us, listen very carefully, it makes us stronger than our pain. To be loved by God is to become stronger even than death. 37 years ago, August 1985, Mike and I would have been 13, if you're interested. We would have just turned 13, August 1985. A hurricane called Elena was bearing down on the Tampa Bay area. The hurricane's unpredictable shifts in direction created what was considered the largest peacetime evacuation in the nation's history because it kept, wasn't clear where it was going to hit, so it just kept evacuating everybody up the coast of Florida. The buildup of which was very much like what we all just experienced with Ian. At the same time, a storm was building in me personally. I was 13. That's already hard, being 13. My parents had just separated after a few tumultuous years, and we're on the edge of the precipice of divorce. I can actually remember being at my dad's totally unfamiliar and sparsely furnished apartment as the winds of Elena were the strongest. I tell you this story because there's so much fear and uncertainty in the buildup to a hurricane. The story is, I mean, the, 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 the sort of national public narrative is be afraid. 
And at the height of the storm's travails, I made a choice as a 13-year-old to go outside. I went outside and stood in the parking lot of that unremarkable apartment complex because I think I, think I wanted to see, to feel for myself, maybe to face it somehow, this thing bearing down on us. And as I stood there in the parking lot, I think I actually learned something as these winds whipped around me. I think I learned something important, actually something lasting stood with me, standing my ground in the fury of those feared winds. Actually, a lesson I had not thought about for many years until this past week, when another hurricane was again bearing down on our homes and our lives, and I could see the clouds of fear forming around my own family. So when the winds were at their peak in Tampa, I took my 13-year-old son, my now 13-year-old son, Skyler, outside to stand in the street just outside our house. And as we stood there as these 80-mile-an-hour winds whipped around us, to whisper in his ear, this is all it can do. This is it. See how you stand firm as the winds whip and rage around you. See how much stronger we are than the winds of change and fear. And I'm not recommending you do this in a hurricane, but I'm just saying, or take your children out into it. I'm just saying that it's something, it's a formidable thing to stand in the midst of these winds whipping around you and to realize I am unmoved. And all of this fear and all of this, 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 this prediction. And I'm not saying it isn't dangerous to our property. It is. And the things we build in this life, they can be torn down by winds that whip around us. But we, this fearsome thing made in the image of God, called by God, named by God, we are stronger somehow than these winds that move around us. course, our property, our structures, our possessions, they're not so safe. And if we're not careful, if we're too close to our things, we might actually be in danger too, but the things we build can be taken to pieces by a strong, sustained wind, but we cannot. We were not built with human hands. We are made of stronger stuff. We were formed in the image of an eternal, indestructible God. Consider that. These winds are weaker than you. This is what I whispered to him. These winds are weaker than you. And the winds of pain and failure and divorce and despair, these are all weaker than you. I wanted him to know. I want you to know this morning that life is full of noise and fury. But if you follow him, over the full span of your life from beginning to end, if you stand and do not give up, in each season you come back again and say yes to Jesus, that simple invitation. You make that trade anew, all your lesser desires for him. 
and let him make you into something extraordinary. If you let him use the pain of your life to tell this one surpassingly beautiful story, no wind of time or desire or pain can move you. And that's my prayer for you this morning. Choose him again today.